This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The Texas State Penitentiary at Huntsville is under siege tonight. Inside, convicts with guns are holding hostages. Outside, the prison is surrounded by by guards carrying rifles and shotguns. And both sides are negotiating. On a summer day in 1974, a real scorcher, 102 degrees, three prison inmates did the unthinkable. They lay siege to the Huntsville unit the oldest prison in Texas. No one knew how these guys managed to smuggle guns and ammo behind bars, but they did. They barricaded themselves in the prison library of all places, where they rounded up the prison teachers and librarians and held them at gunpoint. Most of the captives, middle-aged women. And then the leader of the uprising, the mastermind, a man who wasn't afraid to kill or be killed to get exactly what he wanted, he got on the phone. Now, there's only one way that these people will see the light again, and that's for you to cooperate. Better alive going out. That voice you hear is offender number 237163, Federico Gomez Carrasco, otherwise known as Fred. Carrasco was 34 years old, short, kind of pudgy, more soft-spoken than you'd expect from a murderous drug lord but he was already a legend in the criminal underworld of the United States and Mexico. Troubadours on both sides of the border wrote songs of his exploits. Fred Gomez Carrasco was smarter than the average criminal. He'd risen from nothing on the streets of San Antonio, Texas, to build a sprawling empire of drugs and blood, earning millions and millions in illicit cash along the way. He'd survived jailbreaks and assassination attempts and was already one of the most ruthless killers in Texas history, which is saying a lot. And now Carrasco was about to go from just another convict, in the eyes of the Texas legal system at least, to the orchestrator of one of the most notorious hostage crises in American history. Authorities in Mexico believe Carrasco was responsible for at least 40 murders, but he drew a life sentence in Texas for attempting to kill a policeman. Now, Fred Carrasco wants out. With Carrasco calling the shots from the prison library, not everyone was going to make it out of this alive. Innocent lives would be lost. Matter of fact, I come within an inch several times of getting my head blown off. Just because y'all are waiting, you know. And it's, it's serious, and they're not playing. So do what you can, and do it quickly. My name is Wes Ferguson. I grew up in the East Texas Piney Woods a few hours down the road from Huntsville, and I've been an author and journalist in Texas for more than 20 years. And I almost don't want to admit this, but somehow, I don't think I'd ever heard the name Fred Gomez Carrasco. If you don't have any ties to Huntsville or San Antonio, chances are you don't remember him either, which is kind of shocking the more I learned. I think we all memory hold Carrasco's historic siege because it happened at the height of this other controversy up in Washington, D.C. And in all of my years of public life, I have never obstructed justice. People have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I've earned everything I've got. Yep, Watergate was in full swing that summer. The presidency of Richard Milhouse Nixon was crashing down. The hostage crisis in Huntsville, Texas, also made top headlines from coast to coast. And then we forgot about it. Last winter, I stumbled across the Carrasco story in a really random way. 
I have this buddy named Ben, who's a devout Catholic. Ten kids, Latin mass, all that. And it turns out the priest who officiated Ben's wedding just so happened to be the prison chaplain during Carrasco's siege. Ben told me just enough to get me interested. Then I started digging. That's when I found an astonishing treasure trove. The Texas Department of Corrections, now known as the Department of Criminal Justice, had recorded nearly all the phone calls made during the siege. The actual phone calls. And they were riveting. I felt like I was eavesdropping on Carrasco as he negotiated with the prison warden and other top officials. I listened to the hostages themselves, on the phone with their loved ones, some even saying their final goodbyes. This will be our last day to live if, if, if somebody doesn't come through and help us. They're desperate men and they mean business. As if the prison recordings weren't enough, I was then given a box of old cassette tapes containing interviews with more than a dozen people who lived through the siege. That's when I knew I had to tell this incredible true story. The recordings tell pretty much everything you need to know about the 1974 Huntsville prison siege. In this podcast series, you'll hear audio from Carrasco and so many characters as the siege unfolded. Survivors will recount their harrowing experience, many telling their story for the first time in years. Some are just begging for their lives. Now look, he's fixing to shoot me. You know, I'm fixing to die if you don't do something right now. And the rest of us in there are going to die too. These people don't have anything to lose and they're serious. And all they want to do is get out of the country. And that, that's not too big a price to pay for 11 lives. Now, is it? If the prison let Carrasco walk free, 11 hostages, innocent people, would be spared. Was that too big a price to pay? For the Texas Department of Corrections, TDC for short, yeah. Maybe it was. From Imperative Entertainment, I'm Wes Ferguson. This is Standoff. That old white-haired judge in Dallas Didn't pay my story no mind Taking me down to Huntsville I'm bringing in a load of time They caught me on a caper that I planned for days And proved everything I'd done I'm on my way to Huntsville But I'm looking for a chance to run Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. This is chapter one. Let the siege begin. If you can find Houston, Texas on the map, then you can find Huntsville. It's about 70 miles north, past the city, the burbs, the sprawl, into the piney woods of East Texas to the front steps of the oldest prison in Texas. The Huntsville unit has been locking up people for a very long time. 
More than 170 years, in fact. The first inmate, way back in 1849, was a cattle rustler. You know, Texas. Picture your average prison. Chain link? Razor wire? Down a lonely road tucked away in some forgotten corner of rural America where the convicts are doing time out of sight, out of mind. For those of us on the outside, the free world folks, it's like these men don't exist. They made their mistakes, and now they're gone. That's what makes Huntsville so unusual, at least to me. The Huntsville unit isn't hidden anywhere. It's smack dab in the middle of town, the town of Huntsville to be exact. One minute you're strolling the courthouse square past little shops and cafes. Make the easy walk south of the courthouse square and you'll soon come to Sam Houston State, the local university. Try heading east from the square instead, just a block or two. All of a sudden, you've arrived at a very different scene. This is the Huntsville unit, the prison. It's right there in the thick of things, like a fortress plopped onto the cutest little southern town you've ever seen, populated by the friendliest folks you ever met. There's an old story college students used to tell. I can't say it's verified fact, but it is a story that gets passed around. I've heard it all my life. The Huntsville unit is where the state of Texas executes death row inmates. These days, the executioner uses a cocktail of poison to end a person's life. For decades, the prison relied on an electric chair named Old Sparky. The electric chair was not exactly ergonomic. It was made of wood with a straight back, all these leather straps to hold you down, and an electric cable that ran to the back of your head. When the executioner flipped the switch, 2,000 volts was the ultimate punishment. Down the street, the lights would flicker and dim in the college dorm rooms. That's when the students at Sam Houston State University knew the death chamber had claimed another soul, only three blocks north on University Avenue. Or so the story goes. There are more than 40,000 people in Huntsville. Half of them are college students. Another 1,700 are men waiting out their sentences in the Huntsville unit. They're right there. You can hear them, but you can't see them. Besides the prisoners and the guards, Huntsville also has a whole support system of personnel, cooks, librarians, janitors, people who had to make sure the prison ran smoothly every day, side by side with dangerous criminals. The type of people you would probably expect to see around town, maybe at the diner on a Sunday morning, just a few blocks away. When they're on the job, they, and the entire prison, are surrounded by walls. Red brick walls up to three feet thick, looming as high as 32 feet above the street below. Guards with shotguns stand watch in towers along the perimeter, but there's no need for razor wire, not with walls like these. That's why nobody calls this place the Huntsville Unit. Not really. The guards and the inmates and the folks in town all know the prison by another name. They call it the Walls. Nobody gets out of the Walls. Or can they? Well, what's your full name? Stephen Ray Robertson. What do they call you, Steve? Yes, sir. You want some coffee? No, sir. Thank you. Cigarette? No, sir. Put one out. What, what, did, what have they got you up here for? We're in TDC for rape. What kind of sentence are you serving? 16 years. The hostage crisis is about to start with a bang. And little does he know it, but this guy has a front row seat. 
Why did Stephen Ray Robertson just so happen to visit the Huntsville Prison Library during the lunch hour on Wednesday, July 24, 1974, the fateful day the siege began? Well, he went because he was upset. Robertson was going to sit down at a table in the prison library and write out an official complaint called a writ to Jim Estelle, the director of the Texas Department of Corrections. I'm involved with prison reform, and uh, they got me classified as an instigator. I got agitated, I don't know. But. Steve Robertson believed the prison was picking on him. Every time he was sent to the Walls Unit for medical attention, the guards threw him in solitary confinement. They never tell me why. And uh, they locked me up. They wouldn't let me talk to nobody in charge. When a guard escorted Robertson to the writ room so he could write out his complaint, Carrasco was sitting right there by the front door, and his sidekicks were a little farther away, both reading newspapers. Robertson knew Carrasco. They'd talked a few times. When Robertson said hi, he immediately sensed something wasn't right. Yeah, I just figured something was, was something was strange was going on because usually, you know, he would talk to each other, smile, and he just ignored me, kept reading the papers. Robertson and Carrasco had a mutual friend, this guy named David Robles. And David was in rough shape. As soon as I got to the walls, I had heard that David was in the hospital, you know, about to die of hepatitis. So I motioned for him to come over and talk. I wanted to ask him if he had talked to David since he was here at the walls and he had a chance to see him. He ignored me again. Can you imagine? At any moment, Fred Carrasco is about to jump up and start waving his gun around, setting the siege in motion. And then he has to contend with this dude, Steve, pestering him about something completely unrelated. I was persistent. I called him. I, I, was, I went in behind him. He had, his, he had a cane with him, and he had it by the door, trying to keep me from opening the door, I guess. But I thought the door was stuck. I didn't, I didn't have any idea it was him trying to keep, it, keep me from coming in. I asked him, have you talked to David? He's over in the hospital. He said, yeah, everything's all right. Leave. I turned around and left. And uh, sit back down in the chair. Five minutes later, that's when it all happened. <clears throat> he come out and uh, told everybody not to move. I was trying to figure out what, you know, what the hell was coming down. <laughs> Next thing I know, he come out with a pistol. Wherever the gun came from, Carrasco had suddenly pulled a 357 Ruger. He fired a single shot into the ceiling, but his shot did not go to waste. He set all the inmates in the back part of the library and the hostages in the front part. And uh, while he was talking to everybody, he said, uh, this is between us and the police. They're not involved in it. And while he was talking, he was he had his pants, he uh, raised his pants leg up and was taking these up. It looked to me about 30, 40 rounds. And uh, looked like a big old clip, but if the clip was not made out of metal, it was made, it was taped around masking tape. He was taking this, taken from his leg. To break out of Huntsville, Carrasco found two accomplices. One was Rudy Dominguez. This guy had a long rap sheet. According to a Texas prison report, he was, quote, a very dangerous person who will, without remorse, shoot or stab someone if the mood so strikes him. Carrasco's other sidekick was a fellow convict named Ignacio Cuevas. No time later, he pulled his pistol out, and by this time, Dominguez and Cuevas was up front, had walked up front. Carrasco uh, told everybody not to move. Cuevas took a chain out and chained the door. 
the three men had begun the siege. I didn't know, I didn't have a clue what was going on. Of all the people who were inside the library that day, Anthony Branch is one of the very few still alive to tell the story. Around Huntsville, everyone knows him as Jack. Jack Branch Jr. Branch is 83 years old. He's a tall man with a kind face and a shock of salt and pepper hair. He lives in a white brick house on a patch of land a few miles north of Huntsville. Branch has been retired for a long time. These days, he takes care of his wife, Betty. Yes, she's in the house now. Getting, she, we're going to take her to get her hair uh, done. She's not too well. Physically, she's okay, but uh, she's got a form of dementia. Just starting out a little bit. We're trying to help as much as we can. Come on in, Sugar. That's my wife. Hello. Hi. How are you? Good. I'm going to take her to the beauty shop later. We'll be sitting here talking, Sugar. No, no worries. Okay. Jack Branch was born in 1938 a child of the Great Depression and the segregated South. I grew up here in Huntsville, in Walker County. Wasn't much to Huntsville then. We, my grandfather had some acres uh, where he uh, grew crops. Oh, we picked cotton, uh, pulled corn, chopped cotton, uh, chopped corn, <laughs> all of that, yes. Branch was a good student, a smart kid. When he graduated from high school, he wasn't allowed to attend the local institution of higher learning, Sam Houston State University. Instead, he got his bachelor's and master's degrees from Texas Southern, a historically black school in Houston. For a black person in Huntsville, being a teacher was one of the best opportunities for a better life. So that's what Branch did. He became a teacher. I taught in segregated schools for about 10 years. And then the uh, schools united, and then the, uh, everybody in the rural area caught the bus, came to Huntsville, went to school. Branch taught a little bit of everything, math, social studies, mostly sixth grade. After 14 years, Jack Branch reached a conclusion. Believe it or not, he was tired of having summers away from school. I started thinking about uh, changing because I had three months off during the summer. Uh, and I worked myself to death, it looked like. Worked doing things around the house, getting all the things together. So hard to, until I decided, I said, I, I think I better go to work and work the full year instead of working them nine months. And the pay, I have extra three months pay. So it made a difference. The salary did. So Branch got himself a job in the Walls unit. His task, teaching general studies to offenders in a classroom next to the library. Some of his students barely had any education to speak of. He started in July of 1974. Jack Branch had worked for less than one month when Wednesday, July 24th, rolled around. Branch arrived at the prison at noon to prepare his lessons for the day. He had no reason to think he wouldn't be teaching his regular schedule 
from 1 to 6 o'clock in the evening that he wouldn't be coming home to Betty and their only son, Ray. Every day at 1 p.m., just one hour after Jack would arrive, the walls unit blared a horn. The horn told all the inmates to stop what they were doing. If the horn sounded, made one sound and stopped, that was uh, count time. Now, that's when the guards would do all the counting of the inmate, made sure uh, we had the correct number of inmates and where they were supposed to be. If the count didn't come out right, then everybody would have to go back to their cells and they'd do a lot of counting then. And then when the count was clear, they sound maybe two, ba- two sounds, bump, bump, and that meant the count was clear. So, before we get much further, you need to know the lay of the land. The prison library was on the third floor of a building inside the walls unit. On the first floor of the building were a kitchen and a mess hall for the prison guards. The second floor was a mess hall for the incarcerated men. And the third floor was basically divided into three parts. The library took up the north end. The classroom area took up the south end. And in between were the offices and the restrooms and the exterior door that opened to a pair of concrete ramps leading all the way down to the prison yard. At 1 p.m., the prison horn sounded just like usual. This time, however, Jack Branch's students did something that puzzled him. All of a sudden, these men started moving without my knowledge. They start gathering over to one side of the building. And then I, I said, what's going on here? And everybody had moved to the back side of the wall. And then that's when I saw the guys with pistols come up through there. And uh, we didn't know what to do. <laughs> sure didn't know what to do because they had those pistols, and I, I moved over where I could get out of the way. Sure did. With Rudy Dominguez waving his pistol menacingly, Jack Branch joined three other school teachers who'd also been taken hostage. Education's an important part of any prison. We want inmates to get their GED, maybe learn a trade, expand their horizons, you know, do things to improve themselves so they can get ahead once they're back on the outside in the free world. But there are risks involved, as these teachers were learning fast. Novella Pollard, the prison school assistant principal, was walking through a hallway between her classroom and the library offices when Carrasco confronted her. She responded much differently than Branch did. Okay, my class had just started at quarter to one. My typing class is on the library side. There were people coming to the law library, which is on the right of my classroom. And I had some papers to get from my class in my office. So I started to cross to get the papers. And I heard someone say, don't move or I'll shoot you. And I glanced up and I took another step toward my office. I was about three feet, four feet from the step. And he says, don't move or I'll shoot you. So then I broke and ran to the library's office, told the women to get down on the floor. One was on the phone. I told him to get off the phone. 
we had to get the warden. He was a man with a gun out there. And I really thought it was just a man who'd gotten a gun and had gone berserk. So they all got down on the floor. In the library office, Novella Pollard hunkered down with three teachers and a librarian named Linda Woodman. Woodman and Pollard acted quickly to protect themselves from the gunman. And Mrs. Woodman and I pushed a card catalog thing across the door to block it. And as we were doing this, or as I went through the door, I'm not exactly sure when Mr. Hurd and Mr. Johnson started out of the office. They had undoubtedly heard something I hadn't. And so I told them what there was a man out there with a gun. Mr. Hurd was Bobby Hurd, a prison guard. You heard him earlier in the show. Now look, he's fixing to shoot me. Mr. Johnson was Dr. Glennon Johnson, another civilian working in the Walls unit. Dr. Johnson was the prison director of education and recreation, and most significantly, the ranking prison employee in the library that day. Wearing bifocals and a head of wavy hair brushed straight back, he was also older than most of the other employees. At all times, he knew exactly what the students and teachers were supposed to be doing. And I was in what is considered the ENR supervisor's office. And Mr. Hurd was in that office with me at that time. I was uh, back in Mr. Johnson's office notarizing some papers. The first we became aware of uh, the disturbance is that we looked, I looked out my window and saw some, someone standing in the library with a pistol in his hand pointed straight up at the ceiling. And then I became aware of something had occurred and almost simultaneously, three shots rang out. Outside the prison library, Lieutenant Wayne Scott was one of the first guards to learn that something was wrong. Yeah, I was the morning shift lieutenant. We had, oh my gosh, probably 12 or 15 officers on shift. Uh, and about seven of those sat on towers on the wall. And then you'd have one officer in each one of the major buildings and one officer on the yard and then your supervisory staff. Typically, I was roaming around. I would be in the office sometimes doing paperwork, but most of the time I was out checking on the buildings or uh, on this particular day, um, my responsibility would be to turn out the work squads uh, after the noon meal. And that's what I was coming back from when all of this began. Lieutenant Scott is a smart and handsome guy who went on to a distinguished career in the Texas prison system. He knew from personal experience how things could turn violent at a moment's notice. He even has the scars to prove it. I have been stabbed a couple of times uh, in my career. You can find pieces of metal around that you can uh, fashion into a weapon, or you can even take a toothbrush and scrape it on the concrete and put a pretty good point on it, enough to puncture your skin. Uh, I got stabbed right in the sternum one time, and then I got stabbed you can barely see the scar right there. A guy jumped on me from behind, and when I put my arms up, he uh, cut me right there. The walls unit is divided into two sections, the upper yard and the lower yard. The lower yard has all the industry and factories, and the upper yard has all the housing units. And there's a tunnel that connects the upper yard and the lower yard. Well, I had turned out the work squads after lunch 
and I was walking back through the tunnel up to the upper yard. And just as I got to the upper yard, an officer yelled at me that there were inmates with weapons in the library. Uh, Sergeant Bruce Novisky was with me. He was my second in command that day. And we both went up the ramp uh, to see if we could see what was going on. We walked quickly. Uh, when we got about 15 feet from, there were double glass doors leading into, at the top of the ramp, leading into the education department. I noticed I could see a chain swinging on the inside where that somebody had looped a chain around the doors on the inside and you could see the tail of the chain swinging. So I, I told Bruce Novisky, I said, this doesn't look good. I think we need to go back and get reinforcements. And just as we turned, two inmates jumped out on either side of the door and started shooting at us through the glass. Uh, and I went through, I had a bullet go through my shirt and uh, Sergeant Novisky got shot in the heel of one of his feet. When the glass doors shattered, Scott didn't even hear them. He wasn't about to wait around to see what happened next. All I heard was the shots, and uh, at that point, I was burning out of there. Fight or flight, it was flight. <laughs> I didn't have anything to fight with against the pistols. But we did see the inmates jump out, and we saw them start begin to point the pistols at us, and we turned and started going. It's pretty scary, pretty scary. I went down the ramp. Sergeant Novisky actually dove from the second level down to the tarmac, and I didn't. I ran down the ramp and went downstairs into the what was that at that time, and I think still is, the officer's dining room. And I told the officers down there to stay in place. Don't leave this room. And then I went back up to the upper yard where I was concealed, where they didn't have a clear look at me. And there were inmates playing basketball out there and they had heard the noise and they were just standing there watching. And I yelled at the inmates to clear the yard. Then I made my way up to the uh, warden's office. Coming up after the break, Bobby Hurd is on his own the only prison guard inside the library, and he's unarmed. Poor Bobby Hurd. Hurd was 27 years old. He attended college at Sam Houston State, right down the road from the Walls unit. But Hurd wasn't just a college kid with an after-school job. He had a family, a wife and kids. He was a bigger guy, standing six foot two and 230 pounds, but his size wouldn't help him. When confronted by men with guns, Bobby Hurd was in for a really bad time. Of course, I was the only officer up there, and uh, all the people rushed back, ran back to the back corner there, and Mr. Johnson asked me, uh, why all the people were running, so I stepped out of the door. And when I stepped out of the door, I saw Carrasco with a gun. So I was close to the attic, so I went to the attic to try to get out, and I couldn't. Mr. Hurd, he was in one of the back offices. He just crawled up and threw that uh, ceiling. 
Quavis was on the other side of the building looking for Mr. Hurd. I understand a lot of Spanish. And I heard uh, Carrasco uh, tell Dominguez, go up there and kill him. If he don't come down, kill him. I knew he was up there, and they knew he was up there. Carrasco was not amused by the escape attempt. He fired three more gunshots at the ceiling and ordered Hurd to come down. Hurd refused. Steve Robertson, being a helpful guy, volunteered to track down Hurd in his attic hiding place. Robertson took Carrasco's cane and started poking holes through the ceiling. Meanwhile, Assistant Principal Novella Pollard was still hiding in her office. So we stayed there on the floor, and they teased me later about me bobbing up. I was so nosy, I was trying to see what was going on. When I saw all of my teachers seated at a table, I knew it was more than one man. And so then Mr. Robinson came to the window of the librarian's office, and he says, you have to come out. He knows you're in here, and you have to come out. When the teachers in the office refused, Carrasco threatened to shoot two of the other teachers he'd already captured. He said, tell them if they don't come out, I'm going to shoot these two women. And we sat there for a few minutes, so then Linda and I had to push the file cabinet back again to get out. And then we went out and we all sat at this table. That's when Novella Pollard came to a startling realization. She actually taught one of the men who was now holding her captive. Ignacio Cuevas was a little guy, only five foot two. He'd never seemed all that threatening before. In fact, his teachers liked him. Although a prison report had described him as quote-unquote mildly retarded, he was also noted for his vivid imagination and almost childlike joy in performing for any audience. Cuevas had even sold a few of his prison house paintings. He was seven days shy of his 43rd birthday, had nine kids on the outside, and was serving 45 years for murder. Novella Pollard felt that she knew Cuevas quite well. I had taught Cuevas when he first came to prison myself. And then, of course, he was in the art and everything. Now, Rudy Dominguez, I did not know by name, but two days later, I remembered where I knew him from. He had sat in that library at different periods of time watching me. And, you you know, you, you keep an eye out for people that watch <coughs> you all the time. And I'd look up, and he'd be sitting across from me in the library part while I was teaching my class. Uh, about two weeks before, I noticed him, and then I'd see him maybe a day later or a day after that. Now, I understand Fred came up and read papers every day, but I never recall seeing him at all. Here's the thing about working in prison. When Novella Pollard and the other employees started their jobs at the Walls Unit, they signed a document with sobering implications. They acknowledged the prison system, TDC, would not rescue them if they were taken hostage. The logic being that if you give in to one prisoner's demands, then every convict suddenly views taking a hostage as their ticket to freedom. There'd be hostages every day. The one thing you're taught, even in 1972, as, as a brand new correctional officer, is that hostages, you will not negotiate with hostages, they will not leave the facility. It's, it's a security issue. Uh, if Everybody understands up front that there will be no negotiation, that hostages will never be allowed to leave, then that creates uh, a disincentive on their part to even take a hostage to begin with. It's something Novella Pollard had given serious thought. Only three years earlier, in New York State, nearly 1,300 prisoners had seized control of the maximum security Attica prison during a massive riot. 
the convicts held 39 prison employees hostage for four days. Finally, state police and prison officers raided the facility, but the results were disastrous. Shooting indiscriminately, officers killed 10 hostages and 29 prisoners. Another 89 were seriously injured. Surely Attica was on the minds of Ms. Pollard and her staff. Could something that bad happen at the Walls Unit in Huntsville, Texas, too? You know, this is always in the back of your mind. This can happen. But I've worked here longer than any of them. I've worked here almost six years. And I, nothing did ever happen, nothing did ever happen. And yet, you know it could. I mean, this is something that you don't disregard. Well, when we moved in this building, and they closed in every window in it, this question came up. You know, there's no way to get to anyone in here. And it's been proved right, you know. There's only the two doors at the front, and that's it. And it was done just exactly like several of us had discussed, you know. If they wanted to take it, they could, and they did, in just the way we thought they could. So you and your fellow teachers and librarians had talked about this before? Right. I mean, we don't even have a fire escape in this building or anything. Although we'd asked for one, we'd, we'd asked for, you know, windows. They, they boxed in windows, bricked them in, that were here. And we asked that that not be done, and it was still done. Did you pick up on that? We moved in this building and they closed in every window. That's right. The prison had renovated the education building three years earlier. And while they were at it, they swapped nearly all the glass on the third floor with hard red brick. This was done to keep the inmates in the classrooms and the library from being distracted by other inmates who were enjoying recreation in the yard outside. The prison had inadvertently turned its own library into a fortified stronghold. There was one way in and one way out. The front door. By the exact timing of when I saw that gun or whether the shots fired first. I'm not real sure. That's Glennon Johnson, the education director. At that time, I did not know what the shots were for because I couldn't see the front door. But I later learned those shots were at officers that were coming up the ramp. We were ordered by Carrasco who by this time had discarded his walking cane and was patrolling all the north end of the building. He would not go beyond the glass door entrance, patrolling all the rest of the building, shouting orders to the other two in Spanish, so exactly what to do. Pistol in his hand. Dominguez had his pistol in his hand with hammer back and waving it around in all directions. That almost uh, constantly, it, both the uh, civilians who worked there and the inmates who were students. The, the inmate students were all seated at, at uh, the typewriter on the north end, with the exception of those that were used in the library, and they were seated at the table. Carrasco and Dominguez had rounded up nearly everybody at gunpoint. And one inmate was on the south side of the door. This later turned out to be Cuevas and he had a pistol. Carrasco and Dominguez were on the north side in the library, and each one of them was with their pistols. Witness Carrasco raised his pants leg way above his knee and unstrapped numerous amounts of ammunition that had been strapped to his leg, both legs, with tape. He ripped that off and then threw some of the bullets across the door entrance to Cuevas, threw some over to Dominguez, who, who by this time had all of us, what he thought were all teachers, corner of the library at this point. He had us assembled in that area. 
Carrasco had all, all had a sizable amount of ammunition strapped to both of his legs. Well, when he unstrapped it, he threw it to them, and they all uncovered it and crammed it in their pockets. This whole time, Bobby Heard was still hiding in the attic. They, they knew who he was. They knew it was Bobby Heard. And at this point, then, Mr. Dominguez pointed his pistol at all of us. And Carrasco said in, in no uncertain terms, if the warden doesn't do what we want, uh, harms one of us, we're going to kill one of you. Every time something happens to one of us, one of you going to be killed. Carrasco got warden Hal Husbands on the other end of the line. Husbands had seen a lot in his career in the Texas penal system. This wasn't his first rodeo when it came to prison uprisings either. But something about Carrasco's voice on the phone told Hal Husbands this guy was different from the others. He was pretty cool. Uh, he just uh, he didn't appear to be excited at all. Just as smooth, talk just as just as natural way. Of course, you never know. This old boy had been through a lot of tight situations, you know. He, he knew how to handle himself under fire. And I thought, it, um, I thought he was well collected, and, and he didn't seem, every, any one time, he never did seem like he was out of, out of control or, or having a fit or anything. Carrasco had control of the prison library. He'd taken more than 70 hostages, including teachers, librarians, and inmates. And he had a list of demands. Looking back, it's hard to believe the folks in Huntsville didn't know what they were in for. They didn't know much about Carrasco's past. They didn't know about his vast riches and the unbelievable drug empire he'd built. And they sure as hell didn't know about the murders. Coming up next time on Standoff, how Carrasco became a legend in the barrios of San Antonio, a cartel king for an unequal age a very successful business, very successful. You know, millions and millions were made. Um, my mom says there was trash bags of money. You know, there wasn't, you know, like enough space for so much money. Scarface, eh, was close, you know, but not even to the extreme that my dad was. And Scarface, people thought was big, you know? Nah, because even my mom would say, you know, like, we had way more than what that man ever had. I think he was just misjudged. He had a lot of bad breaks, but he was a man. He was a man's man, you know. He had, he was known to have, uh, what is that, uh, charisma and, uh, and machismo all mixed in. Well, I believe he was looked upon as a Robin Hood because he was known to help the poor. He had a very giving heart. But then, you know, there was the other side of him, <laughs> the bad part. He was a no-good son of a bitch from the day he was born. Standoff is a production of Imperative Entertainment. It was written and created by me, Wes Ferguson. Executive producer and story editor is Jason Hoke. Audio editing and sound engineering by Shane Freeman and Jason Hoke. Original score for Standoff by Max Baca, with additional music from Flaco Jimenez on accordion. Music engineering by Tony Gonzalez. Our main theme, Huntsville, is performed by Ray Benson and was originally released on the Merle Haggard and the Strangers 1971 album, Someday We'll Look Back. Cover art and design by Gina Sullivan. Carrasco audio tapes from the Texas Department of Corrections, courtesy of the Texas State Library and Archives Commission. 
Special thanks to the staff of the Texas Prison Museum for their generous help with research materials. The Corridos, La Muerte de Fred Gomez Carrasco, El Nuevo Corrido de Fred Gomez Carrasco, El Corrido de Rosa Carrasco, and El Corrido de Alfredo Carrasco are published by San Antonio Music Publishers Incorporated and are courtesy of DLB Records. Special thanks to Eastside Music Studios in Austin, Texas. Have questions? Contact us at podcasts at imperativeentertainment.com. If you love the show, tell your friends, and don't forget to leave us a review. Thanks for listening. San Antonio writer Greg Barrios passed away during the production of this podcast, as did William T. Harper, author of 11 Days in Hell. I hope this show honors their memory. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.